It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. If I were an Arab leader, I would never sign an agreement with Israel. It is normal. We have taken their country. It is true God promised it to us, but how could that interest them? Our God is not theirs. There has been anti-Semitism, the Nazis, Hitler, Auschwitz, but was that their fault? They see but one thing. We have come and stolen their country. Why would they accept that? Those are the words of David Ben-Gurion, reported by Nahum Goldman in his 1978 book, The Jewish Paradox, read by our very own Jimmy Lee Wirt. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. We have an amazing show today. We do. And to join us for that is the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. It's right. David is right. These are very courageous people. As the assault on Gaza continues unabated, and a United Nations study just released reports that two mothers an hour are dying in Gaza. Two mothers an hour. On today's program, we're going to focus on the grassroots peace movement, both inside and outside of Israel. To that end, we have invited two guests from different organizations. First up will be Ido Seder from Standing Together. Standing Together is a movement based in Israel, aimed at, quote, mobilizing Jewish and Palestinian citizens of Israel in pursuit of peace, equality, and social and climate justice, unquote. We'll find out how the peace movement is faring in the eye of the storm. Next, we speak to Stephanie Fox, head of Jewish Voice for Peace. Jewish Voice for Peace is the largest Jewish anti-Zionist organization in the world. They have been doing a tremendous amount of work in informing Americans, Jews, and Gentiles alike about the realities of Netanyahu's policies with their demonstrations and their daily power half hour for Gaza Zoom calls, which give updates and encourage Americans to encourage their representatives in Congress to call for a ceasefire. As always, somewhere along the line, we'll check in with our vigorous corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's speak to an Israeli voice for peace. David? Ido Setter works on Standing Together's digital mobilization team. Standing Together is a grassroots movement mobilizing Jewish and Palestinian citizens of Israel in pursuit of peace, equality, and social and climate justice. He joins us today from Israel. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Ido Setter. Hi, thank you for having me. Welcome indeed, Ido. First, before we get underway on some of the questions we have about the situation over there, describe your group, Standing Together. It's a pretty courageous group. It doesn't get all that much deserved media in the U.S. People in the U.S. don't know how much cooperation there is inside Israel on a day-to-day, daily basis between Israeli Jews and Israeli Palestinians. For example, over 20% of the pharmacists in Israel are Palestinians. Israeli Palestinians, and a lot of doctors are Israeli Palestinians, and a lot of bus drivers are Israeli Palestinians. So we had on earlier Miko Peled, who said there's already one state. The Israeli government controls all of Palestine. All we need are equal rights, and we're underway. So with that background, tell us about Standing Together, how it started, and what it does. Well, Standing Together was founded at the end of 2015 and really began its uh, activities 
Dan, and it advocates for peace, social justice, climate justice. And I think that the main, the main thing to know about standing together is that it's a grassroots movement, a populist movement, a movement that tries to envision Israeli society in a different manner. Because we're used here in Israel-Palestine to divide or be divided to the, the regular axis of left or right, capitalist, socialist. And we, in standing together, we try to, to break those divisions and try to connect all the various communities that we have in Israeli-Palestinian societies, such as Russians, Ethiopians, Palestinians, Israelis, religious Jews, seculars, and uh, Muslims, Druze, and so forth, and try to, to connect with them and not to divide according to the left-right axis, but to connect on the basis of immediate interest, of trying to work together and not to agree on everything, because that's impossible and it's also not a very good state, but to work together towards our mutual interest. Nato, you describe standing together as not a NGO, in other words, not a citizen group, nonprofit citizen group advocating things, or you also say you're not a political party. So you're taking a very interesting status about what you do. Can you describe that? Because you say, quote, the leftist parties can no longer mobilize wide swaths of the Israeli public, and professional NGOs likewise fail to provide meaningful activism for the average layperson. Standing together seeks to fill the void between these two groups. It's a grassroots movement rooted in inclusivity and pluralism, and you say we will unite the Israeli masses and propel them to action. How do you unite Israeli masses, and what kind of action do you seek? Well, I think that the first thing that we try to do is to say or to state that our future is much too important to be left to the hands of politicians, and we need to take matters into our own hands, and we're responsible for our future, and we can change our future, because if we don't do that, politicians will do it for us. And being a grassroots movement, so we have, we call it circles of activities or circles of activists throughout Israel-Palestine, and we do inside the communities, from the northern Israel to southern Israel, and we do communal work. And we, we just grow from a bottom up, from the communities to uh, public work and activism. And the main idea is to work together, to unite on the basis of my immediate interest, as for me as, as a secular Israeli, for someone else as a religious uh, Muslim. But we still have common interests that we can cooperate and try to achieve together. You say you have eight regional chapters throughout Israel and six student chapters. Give us an idea of some of the events that you initiate, just so we know more clearly what Standing Together does on a regular basis. Okay, it of course depends on the situation. We, when the, in the past three months after October 7th, so it's very much related to the war, but also to the, to the inside conflicts, to the inner conflicts that we recognize in Israel. And for example, we started a solidarity guard that was on the ground on various cities and erased racist slogans and made sure that no one will be hurt because he spoke Arabic in the street 
and we initiated a hotline where you can phone in and say that you were fired from your job because they, you were such and such, or you said such uh, things about the war or about Gaza or about Palestinians. And that's the, the main activities that we had in the past three months. But I think that like in regular times, if there are any regular times in Israel, so it's much more sort of a communal work and we have key struggles that we fight. We had housing struggle in, in order to get the rent prices, try to make them more reasonable. And so each circle and each student chapter chooses its own fight to fight. We're talking with Ido Setter, who is the spokesperson for Standing Together, a group in Israel. Now, this must be very difficult for you now since the October 7th Hamas attack and now the, the war on Gaza, which is horrendous and is turning a lot of world opinion against the Israeli regime of Bibi Netanyahu. You seek an end to the occupation. What is the final status do you see for Israel-Palestine? A one-state, a two-state? What do you mean by an end to the occupation? Well, I can't really tell what's the end point, whether it will be one state or two states. What I can say is that it's a state where there will be equality and freedom for both people. And right now what we have is the exact opposite because the Israeli's right-wing government imagined, envisions this land as a land of only one people. So we need to, of course, end the war, reach a ceasefire agreement and end the war, and then move forward towards an agreement because the only way for us, for Israelis, to live in security is to have a peace agreement with Palestinians. And the only way for Palestinians to have security and, and live uh, uh, next to us is to have a peace treaty with Israel. So this is a, a necessity. A necessity, and I think that the important thing is to acknowledge each other's humanity, first of all. And it sounds basic, but, but we need to, to get to this, that stage as well. And then to acknowledge each people's rights and the right to self-definition and the right to life and security and peace. And so whether it will be one state or two states, I think right now we can't really know. But what we do know is that it's imperative to start talking about it, discussing it, and move towards it. Because if we don't do it, we are doomed to an everlasting war, which is the, the most horrible situation we can think about. Well, these must be very repressive times for a group like Standing Together. Netanyahu has used this massive war on Gaza as a unifying force. How are you getting along? Are you being harassed? Are you being suppressed? Is your movement growing even now? Give us an idea. Okay, so I must say that even in regular times, we're not the most popular kid on the block, and in these times as well, but our movement is growing. Ever since October 7th, our movement has been growing in hundreds of, of new members that have joined. We're going to have a big assembly, our yearly assembly in Haifa in, in 10 days, and it will be very, very big. So because of, I think that after October 7th, after the shock, so everyone spoke the same, the same tone, but now we're more than 100 days after it, and people start to think differently and to see, to see it in, in different light. So standing together, yes, I wouldn't say that we're being harassed, but you know, dealing with the police is not always a treat, especially when, when we have a minister from the extreme right 
controlling the Israeli police right now, but we're dealing with them. We're holding our demonstrations and we never give up. And one of our motto says that where there is a struggle, there is hope. So even in those times, there are difficult times and maybe even dark times, but we, we can still find hope and we can still try to inspire hope and give hope to the public. Are you demanding an immediate ceasefire and the influx of many hundreds of trucks of humanitarian aid? I would assume a lot of Israelis, including obviously Israeli Arabs, are in favor of that. Are you standing up for that? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is for the for the short term. I think it must be done. It, it had to be done yesterday, as they say. But for the long term, I think that we must end the war. We must bring back the Israeli and Palestinian hostages that are being held in captivity by Hamas. We must bring them back alive. And the only way to bring them back alive is by making a deal. And we must seize, seize the fire and stop bombing innocent civilians in Gaza. This is for the immediate, for the immediate short term, but for the long term, I think that October 7th taught us in a very harsh way that we simply cannot continue living as if occupation and military control over millions of Palestinians is a thing that just, you know, is a thing of the ordinary. It's not. It's something that we need to solve and we need to reach an agreement. So short term, cease fire, bring back the hostages, stop the military operation, and longer term, and move forward to a peace treaty with the, the Palestinian people. Absolutely. Well, given that Prime Minister Netanyahu has delayed in an official investigation on how triple-tiered Israeli defenses human intelligence, technological surveillance, warnings by Israeli military of activity in Gaza before October 7th, the receipt of the formal plans of Hamas a year ago, which were ignored. Is there growing skepticism here because he doesn't want an investigation that this was something other than a unprecedented, complete, multi-tiered collapse of the defense against the Hamas attack? Well, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. I think there is the strategical thing that happened that the military wasn't prepared and the response was very slow and the effect of surprise that, that could have been avoided. But I think that if we dive into it, there's a much worse thing that has been going on because for the last, I think, Two decades, Israeli government and Israel as a state didn't offer any kind of hope for the Palestinians. There wasn't not a serious peace process, not serious talks. And basically, Israeli government said to Palestinians, listen, this is how things are going to be. Deal with it. Okay. And when you don't offer any hope, so people will get to extreme places. So what happened on October 7th was, of course, a strategic collapse. But it's also like an accumulation of the past two decades where Israel didn't think that moving forward to a peace treaty or kind of a peace agreement with the Palestinian people is an imperative. And, well, close uh, observers in the U.S. are puzzled in a variety of ways. One is why Prime Minister Netanyahu has said repeatedly, including to his Likud party in 2019, that his strategy obstructing a two-state solution is to support and help fund Hamas. He said that proudly. That was his strategy. And what's the view in Israel about his 
statement saying he actually supports and facilitates the funding of Hamas. And how did all these weapons get into Hamas's hands, given the embargo and the siege? What's the uh, discussion in Israel about these puzzling contradictions? Well, I think that we begin, the, the Israeli public begins to understand that Hamas and the Israeli extreme right wing is sort of a mirror image of each other. Because both sides, when they, their vision for this land is land that, that only one people occupies. Hamas wants it to be the Palestinian people, and the Israeli far right wants it to be the Jewish people. And both of them, the Israeli far right and Hamas, are the enemies to the concept of the Israeli-Palestinian peace. And I think that in that sense, there are many also in Netanyahu that said what you quoted earlier, but also Bezalel Smotrich, Israeli's prime minister, that said out loud, flatly, Hamas is, is an asset, is an asset we should nurture. And the Israeli right has been nurturing Hamas, not, not just with money, with Qatari money, also with money, but also with the concept, with the idea that there will never be peace, this conflict cannot be solved, and the only way to exist here in this land is with power, is to live by the sword. So... I think that after what happened and after what we're seeing now in those past three months, I think that the Israeli public understands that Hamas cannot be destroyed just by military means and that we cannot leave the situation as it is because then we're heading just for the next round and that we need to, to think outside of the box, as they say, and just to move forward and try something that we have never really tried in a serious manner, which is peace. In the meantime, the deaths, injuries, sickness, infectious disease, bombardment, sniping continues in Gaza. It's now two-thirds destroyed in terms of buildings, and there seems to be no let-up in the blockage of assistance to the desperate Palestinian families. There was a heart-rending article in the Washington Post, January 22nd, on mothers trying to give birth, 5,000 births a month in Gaza, and there's nowhere to give birth to. On the roads, no medical assistance, no food, no water, no electricity. A desperate situation for the infirm, the elderly, the people who have had cancer, children, infants. Is there any compassionate wave starting in Israel about this massive slaughter that's going on? These are hundreds of thousands of impoverished families, children who had nothing to do with Hamas, nothing to do with October 7th. Yes, absolutely. I think that after more than 100 days, Israeli public may have the capacity to start to do that and to feel that. But what we are in standing together try to say to the Israeli public is not only that we should feel compassion for the Palestinians, although, of course, we should be feeling compassion for them because that's the humane thing to do, but also that nothing stays on one side of the border. Everything that happens on the Palestinian side of the border eventually comes back to the Israeli side of the border. So it's also one of the most important Israeli interests to not have or to stop the human, humanitarian crisis in Gaza and to make sure that there is enough food and enough supplies for innocent civilians in Gaza, because this war is going to dictate our lives here for the next decade. And after it ends, and it will end one day, it will end, and it will end with an agreement, and then we'll have to live 
together. So in order to do that, we need to stop right now what's happening at the current moment in Gaza, have compassion, and move in the opposite direction that Benjamin Netanyahu and its hawkish government is trying to lead us. And before we conclude, what would you want to say to President Joe Biden and the U.S. Congress, which seem to be a close ally of what Netanyahu's doing? And in order for them not to ask for a ceasefire, they are engaged in hostilities now, the U.S., that is, against the Houthis in Yemen, their bombings in Iraq, Syria. It's quite a price the U.S. is paying because in order that Joe Biden, the Congress, not demand a ceasefire, because if there is a ceasefire, there'd be no Houthi assailing of shipping in the Red Sea. There would be no missiles with Hezbollah in Lebanon. What would you want to say to them, Congress and the President Joe Biden? Sometimes the best advice you can give to your friend is to know when to stop. Well, that's well said. Netanyahu keeps saying that he's engaged in this war for total victory so that Hamas can never do again to Israel what they did on October 7th. It seems to be a war that has no strategic ending but to keep Netanyahu in power and out of the prosecution process. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's correct, but I think it also has another meaning because we must remember that Netanyahu, he is the prime minister, but the people who are setting the tone in, in his government are people like Bezalel Smotrich that I mentioned earlier and Itamar Benvir, extremist right-wing hawkish politicians. And so the other purpose of this war is just to be in war and to eradicate any chance for to build a mutual future and to be engaged in a perpetual war that, I, I mean, nobody thinks that this war can eradicate Hamas, no matter what they say. I mean, after more than three months of unprecedented firepower that the IDF has been deploying in the Gaza Strip, Hamas is still active and is still, it, it won't be destroyed. But I think that Netanyahu and its very extreme colleagues, they want just to keep this state of war and to destroy any chance to build here a future of peace and, and security. And we must, we must stop that, and we must offer an alternative. And I think that this is the main thing that we're trying to do this past three months, is to offer an alternative, not just to say this is wrong, and it is wrong, it is very wrong, but also to say, if had we gone in the direction of peace two decades ago, one decade ago, a decade ago, maybe the October 7th wouldn't have happened. Okay, so maybe this is the, the lesson that we need, one of the lessons that we need to, to learn from this. And this is, this is like a wake-up call. And we should go in this direction, not do what Israel always does, which is to use power and more power. It's futile. It gets nowhere. Well, if things continue, as the chair of the Department of Global Health at the University of Glasgow pointed out, the prediction is that a half a million people in Gaza will die in the current year. You're asking people to support standing together. How would they do that? Well, if they're living outside of Israel, they can join Friends of Standing Together, which is a group of activity abroad, and they can also donate to Standing Together, and so we can broaden our activities. And they can also, of course, support us in social media and share our posts and like our posts and echo our ideas. We need the support. We want this support, and we want to spread our ideas in Israel, but also worldwide. Can you give our listeners 
who wish to support you or find out more about Standing Together, your website? Yeah, it's www.standing-together.org. It's a well, Hebrew and Arabic site, but you have an English tab there, and then you can find all the information about us in English as well. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking with Ido Setter, who is the spokesperson for Standing Together, a very courageous and grassroots effort over the years inside Israel. And we hope that the mass media in the United States will recognize what you've been doing as they go about reporting the bombing and the war on Gaza. Thank you very much, Ido. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Ido Seder. We will link to his work at Standing Together at RalphNaderRadioHour.com. Up next, we turn to Stephanie Fox at Jewish Voice for Peace. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, January 26, 2024. I'm Russell Mokhyber. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau last week proposed a rule to rein in excessive overdraft fees charged by the nation's biggest financial institutions. The proposed rule would apply to insured financial institutions with more than $10 billion in assets, which covers approximately 175 of the largest depository institutions in the country. These institutions typically charge $35 for an overdraft loan, even though the majority of consumers' debit card overdrafts are for less than $26 and are repaid within three days. Under the proposal, banks could charge a fee to recoup their costs at an established benchmark as low as $3 or at a cost they calculate if they show their cost data. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. Now we turn our attention to an American grassroots movement, Jewish Voice for Peace. David? Stephanie Fox is the head of Jewish Voice for Peace. Jewish Voice for Peace is the largest Jewish anti-Zionist organization in the world. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Stephanie Fox. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome indeed, Stephanie. Let's start with your describing what Jewish Voice for Peace stands for in terms of the final status of Israel-Palestine. What do you recommend there? You've come out, obviously, for an immediate ceasefire, opening up massive humanitarian aid for the displaced, besieged, bombed people in Gaza. What do you foresee as the status, the permanent status over there? One state, two state, what? Thanks so much for having me, Ralph. You know, Jewish Ways for Peace, as the largest progressive Jewish anti-Zionist organization in the world, we're also very rooted as a U.S.-based organization, as a Jewish organization and a U.S.-based organization. And as such, we are, you know, guided by a vision of winning justice and equality and dignity for all people, which in the case of Israel-Palestine obviously starts with Palestinian freedom. But we absolutely see that as a vision of a shared future. So we from here don't take a position on one state or two state or the exact the system of governance that will govern the people that are not us, right? And that said, we're very clear on the principles that guide us and what we're fighting for, which is a shared future of peace and security and dignity for all people from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, 
And that must start with justice, equality, freedom, and dignity for Palestinians. And tell us what you've been doing for people who just focus on the mass media and don't hear or read or see about your activities. Tell us about what you've been doing since October 7th. Well, we are a grassroots organization with members all over the U.S. in local communities, basically every community across the country, 85 some places, rabbinic council, students on campuses all over the country. And together we have been just mobilizing with everything in our power, our hearts, voices, souls to bring an immediate and permanent ceasefire to do so with sort of every ounce of power we've managed to build as a grassroots organization over the last three decades. So that has looked like, of course, you know, probably half a million or more calls and emails to members of Congress and the Biden administration, but also a ton of action in the streets. We've been doing the largest in history, sort of Jewish solidarity, civil disobedience actions that have ever happened. So we've been, we've shut down congressional offices and highways and bridges and federal buildings just showing up and staying with our persistence and our real moral clarity, not in our name as Jews, not with our tax dollars as U.S. citizens. And business as usual just cannot happen in the midst of an unfolding genocide. And so we have just brought everything we can to the task. And to what extent are you having an impact in Congress? The pro-Palestinian rights movement in the U.S. seems to dominate the streets, but AIPAC and the pro-Netanyahu forces seem to dominate the suites, that is, uh, the political suites in the White House and in the Department of State and, above all, in the Congress. Are you having a discernible change of heart among any members of Congress? Globally, there is absolute consensus, right, that this must stop immediately, that this is an unfolding genocide, that ceasefire now and beyond that, that there is no military solution to decades of Israeli oppression of Palestinians. And we must see freedom in order to, to end all of this horrible bloodshed. So there's a global consensus about that. And quite frankly, what's amazing to see is that, you know, 80 percent at least of Democratic voters in the U.S. also support an immediate and permanent ceasefire. So we have the people, <laughs> you know, we have the grassroots power, we have the, it is politically popular to support Palestinian rights in this way. And at the same time, like you said, there is the horrifying and very, very obvious direct complicity and partnership of the U.S. government, Congress, and the Biden administration in every bit of Israel's actions, both through, like exactly as you named, through impunity, in every way and mechanism that the U.S. government can manage, through continued massive funding with or without congressional approval, and through the continued funding and fueling of more weaponry into the hands of this genocide. And so we, of course, are opposing continued funding and arming of the attack on Palestinians in Gaza. And we are working to ensure that the power in the streets, as you said, actually translates to shifting the political calculus that upholds the U.S.-Israel alliance undergirding Israeli apartheid. And that's a that's a longer project and one that we're right now in this sort of horrifying confrontation with of just how intractable it feels. But I think we have to really be thoughtful about noticing where those cracks are. So we started with just a handful of members of Congress, and there are now at least 65 members of Congress calling for ceasefire. That grows by the day. We've seen congressional staffers 
many Biden administration officials, hundreds speaking out, registering their dissent. We have State Department officials like you had Josh Paul on the, the on the program coming out, even folks resigning over this moment. And so, you know, I think that I keep reminding myself and our people that the surface cracks last. So we, there is all of that shaking happening based on the power that we have in the streets and that the grassroots is building and it is creating a crisis and it has not moved nearly fast enough and it has been an unthinkably, an unbearably large toll on Palestinians. But all of that is true at once. Well, you're talking about cracks in Congress. Here's one crack that needs to be opened, which APAC cannot really stop once it gets underway. Since 1948, there's never been a hearing by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee or the House Foreign Relations Committee inviting Israeli and Palestinian peace advocates. They've never had a voice on Capitol Hill with all the hearings that have been held since 1948. And you know that there have been former ministers in Israel, former jurists, mayors, security units, heads, who have opposed Netanyahu in Israel, and they've never had a voice in the U.S. Congress. And there have been Palestinian peace advocates who well acquainted with their Israeli counterparts. They've never had a voice. Do you think that that should be a priority to push the House and Senate to give these Israelis and Palestinians a voice? And that would break the grip to some substantial degree of APAC on Congress, which has stifled the voices who want to wage peace instead of war. I absolutely think those voices should be in the center of the conversation. Palestinians in particular have been systematically and very intentionally silenced and boxed out of conversations and not just conversations, but political decisions and billions of dollars of taxpayer money that directly are going to slaughter their families, even as they are U.S. citizens here. So ensuring that Palestinian and other voices of conscience are in the center of the conversation is critical. I would also say that we're past the time for conversation. And so that's why we're so pleased to see things like the court case brought by the Center for Constitutional Rights on behalf of two Palestinian human rights orgs and a couple of dozen of Palestinians in Gaza and the United States, bringing the Biden administration to court for not just failing to prevent, but actually active complicity in Israel's genocide of Palestinians. That court case will have a hearing this Friday. And I think it's so essential that it not just be about like, oh, the U.S. needs to think differently or talk differently about this, but actually our government is direct partners in this genocide. And so being brought to account for that complicity is essential. So I'm really happy that's happening. Well, members of Congress, as you know, Stephanie, always have this one sentence, Israel has a right to defend itself. Of course, Israel doesn't indicate what itself is. It doesn't have firm borders other than all of Palestine. But in the last 50 years or more, over 400 more times Palestinian innocents have been killed and injured compared to Israeli innocents who have been killed and injured in these periodic conflicts over 400 times. Do you speak out by saying Palestinians have a right to defend themselves as well? Well, international law is clear that the Israeli government has, under no circumstances, that nothing justifies the genocide unfolding before our eyes, but also that the concept of like the Israeli government 
defending itself, quote unquote, against a population it besieges and occupies and carries out apartheid over is not protected under international law in the way that it puts forward that it is. And we think it's incredibly important to understand that this did not start in October, that we're looking at 75 years of Israeli colonization and apartheid and injustice and oppression of Palestinians, and that the only way out of this horrifying, horrifying moment that we're in is to realize Palestinian rights and freedom. You've been under assault by groups like APAC and allied groups. They've been accusing you of just about everything, including anti-Semitism. Imagine accusing Jewish Voice for Peace of anti-Semitism. But do you ever talk about the anti-Semitism against the Arab Palestinians? Give us your views on that. Great. I'm glad you raised this. Let me take it in a couple of directions. First, just to speak to sort of the the semantics of the term Semite and an, what does anti-Semitism mean? Just to to quickly ground us, you know, the term Semite comes out of 19th century scientific racism. It's not really something in any moment in history that anybody has actually used to describe themselves as a Semite. It's only a racist term, you know? And so the term mm-hmm. anti-Semitism does refer to the bigotry and discrimination that emerged out of that racist classification system and at its root comes from the same white supremacy in which anti-Palestinian racism and erasure and Zionism itself were born. So the point is not that anti-Semitism is not about Jews, which it is. And of course, anti-Semitism is real. There's real hatred and bigotry and discrimination against Jews. The point is that anti-Semitism and white supremacy and Zionism emerge from the same root of exclusionary, ethno-nationalist, racialized state building, and we have to fight them all together. The answer is solidarity amongst and between our communities and a vision of collective liberation that challenges those that white supremacy and ethno-nationalism. So that's just on the term itself. But what we're seeing now, you're absolutely right, is it's an Orwellian nightmare. You know, there are very, very intentional systematic attempts by organizations like the Anti-Defamation League, APAC, to misstate, confuse, and even legally redefine the word anti-Semitism in order to conflate it with all criticism of Israel or any effort to hold the Israeli government accountable for its oppression of Palestinians. So, you know, it should go without saying to your audiences and to all audiences that opposition to the political movement of Zionism or to the policies of the Israeli state or any state is no different than any attack on or criticism of a political ideology or the policies of a nation state. But there's this campaign to equate Jewishness and Jews with this rogue state actively committing genocide. And that puts Palestinians, as we see, in immense danger. And frankly, as a Jew, it also, you know, it's a huge danger to Jews because if everything is anti-Semitism, then nothing is. You know, and at a time when white supremacists and white nationalists are going to take advantage of this moment to promote anti-Palestinian racism and Islamophobia and real anti-Semitism, misstating and misdefining it is incredibly dangerous for all of our communities. Well, let's talk about the situation on campuses. Now, we're talking with Stephanie Fox, the executive director of Jewish Voice for Peace. You're quite familiar with what's going on in campus. Inform our Listeners, what happened at Columbia University recently? Yes. Well, you know, the first point to make is that 
a government doesn't use these tools of repression as its bludgeon to shut down the conversation if it has any ability to fight on the terms that are presented, right? To actually have a conversation in the open. So we need to understand these massive and like very terrifying tools of repression that are happening, especially on campuses, but even more broadly than that, to shut down the movement for Palestinian rights and freedom as a sign of the merits and growth and power of that movement and its rightness. You know, that said, it's a very scary time, it's particularly for Palestinians and for anybody who's willing to stand up for Palestinian rights. As you mentioned at Columbia University just this week, at a not only have the student groups SJP and our own JVP chapter been banned for no good reason, but just absolutely to try to shut down their activism. And they've been fighting that for a couple of months now, but a protest this week with about 300 students, they were attacked with a military grade weapon, skunk, which anybody who's familiar with the IDF's operations in the West Bank and beyond knows is a horrifying chemical warfare that's designed, it, you know, smells like a combination of dead animal and excrement. And it, it soaks into the skin and clothes and is like impossible to wash off. It leads to nausea, all kinds of medical complications, haziness, memory loss. And students days later are still in the hospital or suffering from those very symptoms were attacked and sprayed with this chemical weapon, likely uh, allegedly by ex-IDF soldiers who are students at Columbia University. And, you know, this took the administration days to even respond to. While we're seeing this hysteria, this real new McCarthyism, what is the conversation? Did somebody say there should be freedom from the river to the sea? And meanwhile, Palestinian students are getting shot for wearing keffiyeh, getting attacked like this with literal chemical warfare, are facing doxing and the loss of their jobs. Like it is, it is a crisis and Palestinian lives are so dehumanized, including in the United States. It's a very scary moment for these students activists who are continuing to bravely speak out. We must be very clear-eyed that attacks against Palestinians and anti-Zionists are a wide open door for the far right looking to criminalize all forms of protest, to gut academic freedom, to roll back racial justice projects. It's not like a slippery slope. It is a iced over mountain road that the Biden administration and the U.S. Congress are just barreling down at top speed, imperiling everybody. Certainly, uh, this whole Israeli-Palestinian conflict is having severe effects in the U.S., not just in terms of military budget, but also freedom of speech, as you pointed out. What can you tell us about J Street, which is a, a fairly large organization that developed to counter the APAC lobby, and they retreated a bit after October 7th, but are they coming back to their original mission? The position of demanding an immediate and permanent ceasefire is a centrist position. And there is no justification in the world for the way in which Biden administration and U.S. Congress and from where we sit, Jewish communal organizations have refused to call for ceasefire. It requires a great moral reckoning for all of those institutions and actors. The fact that it took more than 100 days and more than 25,000 Palestinians slaughtered for J Street to finally this week call for, as they said, it is no longer the time for war. You know, we would argue it's, it's never the time for war after decades of oppression, occupation, and apartheid to see that then 
this genocide has happened with the drums of war being beat by the political establishment and for many months has included J Street. I will say we are we welcome that they are now calling for what is a ceasefire. And I think, like I said, is a, is a reckoning to be done with what has already occurred and what is unfolding from here. Why would a country like Israel, in terms of popular opinion, register over 85 percent support for whatever the Israeli military, whatever it's doing in, in Gaza? You know, I think, you know, if you look at the International Court of Justice case brought by South Africa against Israel, you know, explaining in very detailed terms the legal case for exactly why this is genocide, echoing what Palestinians have been saying from the beginning. It really details the intent that Israeli government officials have made clear from the very beginning. We will make Gaza an uninhabitable place, a place not fit for human life. This will be the carrying out of the second Gaza Nakba. This will be, we will, you know, the like the very direct, explicit claims that they would raise Gaza to the ground, make it unlivable, force everybody out, and aim to eliminate the population in whole or part, as is the definition of genocide. And to then see it play out directly, specifically, fully in the act being carried out here, it's a waking nightmare to watch happen. And there's no denying it, right? They are saying what they're doing. They're doing exactly what they said they would do. And we all have to just really understand that it didn't start in October and that it it won't end when we reach the soonest possible moment that we can, a ceasefire. That this is a devastating playing out of what the Israeli government has been unfolding from its inception. And we, you know, we have to just stand so firmly against that and so clear-eyed about the only future that's possible here, which is one of freedom and dignity and, and peace rooted in those things. Give us your view of where Congress is going to be this year on this matter in terms of appropriations, the genocide tax of $14.3 billion and other positions. Well, I think that to underscore your point that it is a U.S. funded, fueled, and and fully complicit genocide. It's not the actions of the Israeli government over separately. It is our government is in full partnership in this genocide. And so members of Congress are going to continue to hear from their constituents who are outraged and horrified and are not going to rest until this is over and are not going to forget that this is exactly what they're doing with our taxpayer dollars and, and in our name. So there is a political cost that the grassroots base is going to grow and to build and to take out. <laughs> and I think that it can't come a, a minute too soon because that impunity extended by the U.S. for decades now is what has led us to this moment that it is, you know, is it is not just, oh, this didn't just happen. This is genocide occurs only in the case in which you know, the U.S. Has, has made it very clear that we will block all efforts to hold the Israeli government accountable for decades of occupation and apartheid and constant violence against Palestinians. And so, so now is the time when, as the sort of global movement is building and rising so strongly to demand rights and freedom for Palestinians, that the U.S. is going to have to grapple with how it, out of touch it is with the rest of the world and with the people right here. Under international law, the U.S. is considered a co-belligerent with Israel in what's going on in Gaza. It's more than just complicity. It's co-belligerency. How do you think it's going to affect the election, since Trump is probably even worse than 
Biden because Trump wants the Israeli regime of Netanyahu to annex the West Bank and Gaza. How do you think this is going to play with young voters or just voters? How are they going to deal with this issue? Well, you know, the nation just reported on a poll that showed that, you know, voters, that they will support candidates who have been active in advocating for and calling for ceasefire over those who haven't by more than two to one. And, you know, I think that there is a grave need for the voices of people of conscience throughout the U.S. to actually pierce through and make a difference in the actions of policymakers, you know, like Motaz Azeza, who's an incredible journalist who's risked his life for, you know, hundreds of uh, over 100 days broadcasting Israel's genocide to the world, said this thing uh, a few weeks ago of like, don't call yourself a free person if you can't make changes, if you can't stop a genocide that's ongoing. You know, and so I think for Americans to say, can I call myself a free person if the vast majority of, of Democrats are calling for this and yet we see no shift in U.S. policy? And so I think that that there's a a calling to account that is happening now and will continue to happen into the election cycle. Steve? Stephanie, tell us about the uh, half-hour power hours you've been doing daily. Yes, we have a daily space that brings together, you know, between 300 and 1,000 people every single day to take action in community to, you know, channel our grief and rage into political action together. So together we've you know, called and emailed Congress more than half a million times. We've helped create protest ideas. We've written dozens, hundreds and hundreds of letters to editor. We take action every single day. It's like, what is going on? Where is our impact able to happen? And how do we move together as a community? So in addition to being in the streets, it's a great space to come, get renewed, be in community, have a political home, and take discrete action each and every day. Because there's always, always, always more we can be doing to stop this genocide and be advancing the call for freedom. Can Are you getting local media? Because you're, you're certainly not getting much media in the New York Times or Washington Post. Are you getting local media for these daily actions? Yes, you know, a lot, you know, we have over, you know, 85 chapters and local groups all across the country. And they're, you know, woven in and a part of movement in all of those communities. And I think that there's been a quite a lot of local press that is showing the consistent call and demand on members of Congress, pushing them and disrupting business as usual. So that has definitely been a steady beat throughout all of this. And also, none of us can ignore the way that mainstream media is covering this in a, in a very biased way and, and sort of refusing to show the incredible consensus around call for ceasefire and the, and the need for, for Palestinian freedom. David? Uh, Stephanie, as an American Jew, did your position emerge fully formed as a child or was there an evolution? There was certainly an evolution. You know, I think that like for many Jews, I was raised to kind of understand core Jewish values as being connected to the preciousness of human life. We say, but Selim Elohim, every single life is is made in the image of God, is infinitely and equally precious. And was both raised with that and with a kind of understanding that the Israeli government and state and Zionism itself was intended to protect and be safeguarding of Jews and the response to Jewish persecution and and sort of trying to come to terms over time with the real nature of Zionism and decades of persecution and 
colonization of Palestinians and their land in my name and sort of having to grapple with that harm done and how absolutely it has nothing to do with the safety of my community. For me, that took years, like it does for many Jews. But once I once I understood it, irrefutable, you can't go back. And so to be welcomed into, into the movement for Palestinian rights and freedom, you know, so fully and wholly and to feel that like coming together of a Jewish community centered on justice and in deep solidarity with Palestinians fighting for their own lives is, you know, it's the greatest honor and privilege of my life. Are you invited to address any synagogues? You know, we have, there is a large and growing community of faith leaders, of rabbis, of synagogues, of many, many Jews who are working to build a Judaism liberated from Zionism. And so there's probably 10 synagogues across the country that are anti or non-Zionist. There are dozens of independent spiritual communities we called Havarot that are connected or not to Jewish Voice for Peace. There is just a really burgeoning and growing movement to fight for the soul of Judaism, to fight for the future of our communities and our, uh, you know, we have millennia of Jewish tradition that predate the founding of the state of Israel and the movement of political Zionism to lean on and to extend into a future where we are not bound up and made complicit in support for a genocidal ethnostate. Francesco? I attended George Washington University, and during my time there, anti-Zionist Jewish activist students faced vicious retaliation by Zionist groups like Canary Mission. What would you say to student activists facing retaliation today? Say, I would say that your voice and your activism and your persistence is so incredibly important. It is intentional that the Israeli government and its backers and supporters have focused so fully on shutting down and silencing your voice. And it's because of what an essential role it plays in moving the dial and advancing the work toward Palestinian freedom. So know that there's an entire community with and behind you. And that while the threats are very real, so is the moral rightness of what you're doing and the, you know, the irrefutability that you are on the right side of history and you are making a tremendous difference in advancing the cause. We've been talking with Stephanie Fox, Executive Director of Jewish Voice for Peace. Stephanie, how can people get in touch with you, support Jewish Voice for Peace? Do you want to give your website slowly? www.jvp.org. And join us. Like we were just talking about the daily power hour every single weekday for a half an hour. Come channel your rage and grief and horror into meaningful political action and and find a political home with us or with one of our beloved close partners in the movement. You've really innovated in terms of civic advocacy. You know, most civic advocacy tends to plateau and it just expresses itself by we protest, we demand, same old marches without creative use of the marches to raise money with people's cell phone or hold pictures of lawmakers that they want to persuade as they march. You've really innovated in so many ways, and I hope you keep doing that. We've been speaking with Stephanie Fox, the executive director of Jewish Voice for Peace. Thank you very much, Stephanie, for your work and that of your associates. Thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking with Stephanie Fox. We will link to her work at Jewish Voice for Peace at ralphnaderradiohour.com. I want to thank our guests again, Ido Setter and Stephanie Fox, 
For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis with, in case you haven't heard, a transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we're joined by Eva Borgwar from, if not now, another grassroots progressive organization. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. If listeners want to join the hundreds of thousands of calls by Americans coming in, in opposition to the genocide tax of $14.3 billion that Congress is considering tapping into taxpayer money to support more weapons for the Israeli regime, just call 202-224-3121. A telephone call is more effective than an email, and most effective is a postage mailed letter. Have them hear your voice. Stop the genocide tax. American taxpayers should never have to pay for the Israeli government's massive defense collapses that allowed October 7th to occur. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. First, Ralph asks Ido Setter of Standing Together about the work they do on economic equality in Israel. You say that you organize protests around the country demanding economic equality, climate justice, and an end to the occupation. Let's start with economic equality. It's well known that there's quite a bit of discrimination against Israeli Arabs living in Israel. It's hard for them to get a mortgage, for example, or a loan. Could you describe that situation and what you're trying to do about that? Well, I think that the economic inequality in Israel is something that it's been going for so many years that it's already structured into the system. And Israeli Arabs suffer from it as well. And they just, they're sort of born or grown to this system that does not give them the same opportunities that other people are getting. And of course, I mean, what we try to do, first of all, we try as an Israeli-Palestinian movement, we empower people and try to and try to, to speak about it and make everyone aware of it. Because not only Israeli Arabs are hurt from economic inequality, other communities in Israel society as well, Ethiopians, Russians, and so forth. So first of all, we need to acknowledge that this is not a natural thing or just how things are. It's a structure. It's an economical structure. It's a neoliberal structure that maybe all of the of Israeli governments in the last past, I think, 50 or maybe even 60 years, developed and nurtured. So it's a tough fight to battle, but we think it's, it's worth to do it and try to make people aware of those gaps. Okay, try to, for example, one of our biggest struggle is to make the minimum wage a reasonable wage, okay, to make it higher. The minimum wage in Israel hasn't gone up significantly 
in the past five or six years. And from the start, it's, it's a minimum wage, so it's, it's pretty low. It's too low. In Israel, minimum wage used to be 29 shekels. In dollars, I think it's something like $7, $7 for an hour. It's low. It's low. And we uh, started a campaign to make it 40 shekels an hour, which is about $10. And we're not there yet, but even the fact that we are talking about it and we're making people see that, okay, minimum wage is too low than it should be. And it's not my fault. It's not my fault that I cannot make ends meet at the end of the month. It's not because I'm not working hard as I should. It's because the minimum wage that I'm earning is too low. Now, before the official interview began, Steve got to ask a question of Ido Setter. How's it going over there, Ido? Well, not easy. Well, it's almost strange to say that it has been, you know, a couple of rough, couple of rough days because we are more than uh, three months into yeah. this uh, situation. But uh, yes, the, the past week was a rough one. But we tried to manage to find some hope. Uh, although it seems uh, very far away right now. Are you encountering a lot of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, hatred from your fellow Israelis? Well, yes. Hatred and verbal violence, the most part. And also this sort of a lack of understanding of why, why are you saying what you're saying? Why are you cooperating with the enemy? And it's tough. And it's tough. And, uh, and it sometimes can make you feel isolated. But at the same time, we held the biggest rally against the war uh, a week ago with more than uh, 2,000 demonstrators. So you have some sort of ups and downs, I guess, in this matter. And I think that more and more Israelis begin to understand the futility of the military uh, situation. So, so we hope that they will join us. In this next part, Ralph and Stephanie Fox of Jewish Voice for Peace talk about the undercount of casualties in Gaza. Well, maybe the pressure for a ceasefire in the last 105 days or so would have increased if we didn't allow an undercount of the fatalities in Gaza. There's no city of 2.3 million that can be bombed and denied food, water, electricity, fuel, medicine, health care, hospitals disabled, if not destroyed. 85% of the people out of their homes, living outside or under thin tents, all kinds of sick people, unable to get medical care, infectious diseases spreading, babies being born into desperate, harmful, lethal situations, and only have 25,000 people. As we've said on this program, if this happened to Philadelphia with 1.5 million people in the same geographic area, you would have far more, far higher estimates of fatalities and injuries and sickness. The head of the Global Health Department at the University of Glasgow said a few weeks ago in The Guardian that as this continues, this devastation, this denial of outside aid, this no food, water, electricity, medicine, fuel, that a half a million Palestinians in Gaza will die, half a million of the 2.3. And that's probably an undercount. You just can't live without food, water, health care, shelter, medicine against infectious diseases, and a horrible fate for mothers giving birth, which was reported in the January 22nd issue of the Washington Post in great detail. So I, I'm asking you, 
why do groups that are for peace in Palestine still use this kind of undercount? Because it's attributed to the health ministry of Hamas, but Hamas has an interest in lowballing the casualties. Paradoxically, as that may seem, because they don't want to be charged with the inability to protect their own people. The casualty count is very important politically, not only in a humanitarian sense. What's your view on that? I mean, I would say I think that you're right that we only have the most surface understanding of the level of devastation that is occurring, even as we watch it before our very eyes. So the numbers dead don't even begin to capture the thousands surely buried under rubble. You know, I was just reading yesterday about a father who's been digging for 25 days to just find the remains of his baby daughter to be able to give her a dignified burial. And just those one story, but you just think about the massive level of very intentional destruction of civilian infrastructure, of hospitals, of the ability to, you know, like you said, people are literally starving and, and dying of thirst. Children are having heart attacks. And I have had the very strong feeling throughout this whole time that like it will take us a decade to understand the the gravity of what is actually unfolding before our eyes, the level, the toll, that not just the sheer number dead in this exact moment, um, which is already beyond thought, is just already staggering. But what is unfolding and is being made to happen through the intentional creation of this biggest humanitarian crisis of our lifetimes. And the long-term impact on those who survive, stunted children, brain damage, all kinds of injuries that weren't treated, that can be infected, all kinds of disabilities. This is 2.3 million people who are now, if they're not dying, they're sick, they're starving, they're dehydrated, they're afflicted with diseases without any health care. The Israeli military has bulldozed 16 Gazan cemeteries and put up military posts there. They have deliberately destroyed crops of food that the Palestinians grew because of the embargo in recent years. They destroyed them and contaminated the ground. We're seeing acts of pure revenge here that are not adequately reported in the U.S. press. Finally, more from Ralph about the imbalance in casualties over the years between Palestinians and Israelis. Well, as was mentioned in our interview with Standing Together earlier in the program, if you go over the last 50 years or more, the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, 400 times more innocent Palestinians, civilians have died or been injured than has been the case with innocent Israeli civilians. And that often is not front and center here in terms of the sheer imbalance of destruction by one side over another. And as historians have pointed out, Stephanie, the Palestinians didn't ask for this struggle. This came out of World War II and the Holocaust. And they're the ones who are feeling the brunt of it year after year after year with full U.S. support unconditionally without any adherence to federal laws that state that you don't ship weapons to countries who violate human rights and you don't ship weapons to countries who use their weapons offensively. Israel has violated both of those laws year after year without so much as a hearing in Congress or a response from the executive branch. Now it's time for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. 
Just Foreign Policy reports there is dissent brewing among Obama foreign policy alumni regarding President Biden's air war on the Yemeni Houthis. Former Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes, considered Obama's foreign policy guru, called the campaign, quote, a dangerous escalation, end quote, and further stated, quote, we have no legal basis to be doing that, end quote. Rhodes, joined by former National Security Council spokesman Tommy Vitor, are thus aligned with the dozens of groups, including the Friends Committee on National Legislation, the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and World Beyond War, among many others, which signed a letter calling for an end to the campaign. Representative Rokana, writing in The Nation, argues that, quote, President Biden has both a constitutional obligation and a political imperative to seek congressional authorization for proposed hostilities, end quote, but is quick to note that, quote, it is not too late to pursue a more effective approach, which happens to be wildly popular with voters, regional diplomacy and statesmanship, end quote. Asked, quote, are the airstrikes in Yemen working? President Biden himself replied, quote, are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes, per just foreign policy. Following Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's statement ruling out a two-state solution, more Senate Democrats are warming up to the idea of imposing conditions on military aid to Israel. Yahoo News reports that 18 Senate Democrats now support, quote, an amendment that would require that any country receiving funding in the supplemental aid package use the money in accordance with U.S. law, international humanitarian law, and the law of armed conflict, end quote, with five senators, Tina Smith, Tammy Baldwin, LaFonza Butler, John Ossoff, and Raphael Warnock, adding their names after Netanyahu's comments, per Jewish Insider. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has been noncommittal, with the Times of Israel reporting that he said, quote, a Democratic caucus is still discussing the best way forward regarding conditioning aid to Israel. The Huffington Post reports controversial Biden Middle East advisor Brett McGurk may have earned a target on his back from congressional progressives. A draft letter from congressional Democrats to Biden demanding McGurk's resignation is already circulating, with sources saying frustration with McGurk, quote, has reached a boiling point, end quote. McGurk's signature Middle East policy has been his attempt in marriage of Israel and Saudi Arabia, even going so far as to push, quote, U.S. officials to tie the future of Palestinian enclave of Gaza to the prospective Saudi-Israel deal, end quote. Other officials, speaking anonymously, called the plan, quote, delusionally optimistic, end quote. However, while progressives may well claim McGurk's political scalp, some worry that he could become a scapegoat for administration-wide policy on Palestine. Harvard, caving to attacks from the likes of Larry Summers and billionaire Bill Ackman, has established an anti-Semitism task force. However, this has not stopped the bad faith attacks on the university, with that same coterie now alleging that the co-chair of the task force, professor of Jewish history Derek J. Penzlar, is insufficiently Zionist, per the Crimson. Penzlar has previously signed a letter stating, quote, Israel's long-standing occupation of Gaza has resulted in a regime of apartheid, end quote, and rejects the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which includes anti-Zionism. Summers wrote that Penzlar is, quote-unquote, unsuited to lead the task force. Meanwhile, the American Academy for Jewish Research writes, quote, Professor Penzlar is a prolific scholar with a stellar international reputation whose numerous books address the historical developments of many of the topics raising rancor at our universities today, anti-Semitism, Zionism, Jews in the military, and the history of Israel, end quote. Responding to Summers, Professor Stephen Levitsky, who is Jewish, said, quote, Larry Summers is not representative of a majority of Jews at Harvard, end quote, adding, quote, that guy is batshit crazy, and you can quote me on that. 
U.S. District Judge William Young has blocked the planned merger of Spirit Airlines and JetBlue Airways, arguing the acquisition would, quote, substantially lessen competition in violation of the Clayton Act, which was designed to prevent anti-competitive harms for consumers, end quote, for the Hill. President Biden praised the decision in a statement, saying, quote, Today's ruling is a victory for consumers everywhere who want lower prices and more choices. My administration will continue to fight to protect consumers and enforce our antitrust laws, end quote. The Department of Justice has been fighting this merger since March 2023. The New Republic reports, quote, Earlier this month, Democrats on the House Oversight Committee released an explosive report documenting that Donald Trump's businesses pocketed at least $7.8 million dollars in payments from foreign governments during his presidency, end quote. Yet, House Democrats are powerless to subpoena witnesses to further investigate the report because Republicans hold the majority. Ranking Democrat on the House Oversight Committee, Jamie Raskin, has been pushing Senate Democrats, who hold the gavels in that chamber, to issue subpoenas. Yet, these Senate Democrats have hesitated to do so. We urge these powerful Democratic committee chairs to use their subpoena power. The American people deserve to know if their president profited from foreign dealings at their expense. Public Citizen reports, quote, The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau plans to crack down on banks charging ridiculous overdraft fees. Their proposal would cap overdraft fees at $3 and close the loophole that allows banks to take advantage of Americans who are already struggling. Quote, CFPB Director Rohit Chopra is quoted saying, quote, Decades ago, overdraft loans got special treatment to make it easier for banks to cover paper checks that were often sent through the mail. Today, we are proposing rules to close a long-standing loophole that allowed many large banks to transform overdraft into a massive junk fee harvesting machine. End quote. According to the CFPB's statement, quote, the proposed rule would apply to insured financial institutions with more than $10 billion in assets. The CFPB estimates that this rule may save consumers $3.5 billion or more in fees per year. California Senate candidate Barbara Lee has picked up the endorsement of the statewide McClatchy editorial board, including major Golden State papers like the Sacramento Bee. In their announcement of the endorsement, the Bee wrote, quote, Barbara Lee stood out from the rest. Her independence, her perseverance in fighting for the underdog, and her life experiences set her apart, end quote. Confirming this assessment... Just this week, Congresswoman Lee was kicked out of a House Foreign Affairs subcommittee hearing on Cuba for arguing in favor of normalizing diplomatic relations. The National Labor Relations Board has filed a complaint against Trader Joe's for the company's attempted union busting. Based on a 2022 unfair labor practice charge, the complaint alleges the company shuttered their New York City wine store in order to avoid impending unionization. In addition to, quote, subjecting employees to interrogation, threatening to cut their benefits, and telling them deciding to join a union would be futile, end quote. Grocery Dive reports. United Food and Commercial Workers Union praised the decision, writing, quote, Trader Joe's shamelessly and illegally engaged in union busting to scare Trader Joe's workers across the region and stop these workers from having a voice on the job. We applaud the NLRB's decision and look forward to holding Trader Joe's accountable for their egregious anti-worker behavior, end quote. Possible remedies the board could utilize include compelling the company to reopen the store. Finally, The Intercept reports Republicans Glenn Grothman and Marco Rubio have put forward a bill to provide pensions to citizens who worked for Air America. But just what was Air America? The generically named airline was in fact a CIA cutout, which, quote, has been accused of running weapons and even drugs in Southeast Asia, end quote. 
The faux airline also played a key role in the CIA's operations in Laos and Cambodia, among the darkest chapters in American covert ops history. Tim Weiner, author of Legacy of Ashes, told The Intercept, quote, the whole point of Air America was to kill communists, quote. Ironically, as the piece points out, these are the same Republicans who decry the so-called deep state. This has been Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way.